Hello, and welcome back to Thoughts on Foreign Policy. As always, I'm Derek Pisacchio, and today I have a special program for you. Today I have a guest co-host with me, Nicholas Glavin. Nick, would you mind introducing yourself? Thank you for having me on, Derek. I'm Nicholas Glavin. I focus my research on NATO affairs. 2014 continues to challenge the Alliance's commitment to collective security amidst changing global threats and security dynamics. I look forward to our discussion. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to address China's activities in South Sudan and American President Barack Obama's announcement of a strategy to defeat the Islamic State. Before we start those, I'd like to share our quote of the week. It is this. The reason we got here is because we took it upon ourselves to topple secular dictators who are enemies of radical Islam. Who said this and why? We'll get into that later. Let's begin our first subject on China and South Sudan. To start, I think it's important to point out that China largely has a hands-off policy when it comes to business partners. China is interested primarily in the economic benefit of its trading relations and doesn't ask questions about internal political dynamics. Now, Chinese demand plays heavily into what it does abroad. Given China's rapid economic growth over the past few decades, beginning with the reforms of Deng Xiaoping, the country and its large population consume a lot of energy. China's main source of energy consumption is coal, something China has struggled to reduce. Its relative abundance have made it a great way for China to support growth, though at a massive toll on the environment. As such, China is looking abroad for other sources of energy. According to the Brookings Institution, China depends on foreign imports for over 50% of all of the oil it consumes, and a lot of that is from the turbulent Middle East. In Africa, China is looking for alternatives. In addition to raw materials and resources, crude oil is one of China's main imports from the continent of Africa. So Nick, how does that play into South Sudan? Well, Derek, in the context of South Sudan, China recently announced it will provide 700 peacekeepers under the UN mission to South Sudan. While the mission's acting spokesman denied they were protecting oil industry infrastructure, where the China National Petroleum Corporation holds a 40% stake in development, the announcement of this deployment is worrisome for various reasons. Beijing is the biggest investor in South Sudan's oil industry. China's officials said they will only protect civilian oil industry workers if necessary. Although China has 1,800 peacekeepers scattered across Africa, this announcement is troubling because it is the first time China will be sending an infantry battalion to the region. And what does this mean for the United States and its allies? Well, Derek, China's long-term investment in Africa is threatening to the United States in the long run. There is a possibility of moving these developing nations to an eastward outlook, putting the U.S. as a secondary influencer. At the end of 2009, China surpassed the U.S. as the largest investor in Africa. Now, China's history of non-interference is favorable to some in Africa. Even in Darfur, China's arms contracts and factories are prohibiting the United Nations Security Council from taking any decisive action to stop the massacres. While China continues both to sell arms to South Sudan's government and push for a diplomatic end to the civil war, Beijing's policies of non-interference and respect for state sovereignty in Africa are becoming increasingly difficult to manage. It is apparent that China's economic interests are beginning to clash, even contradict, with its hands-off policies. Though China's actions in South Sudan have largely gone unnoticed with other news stories going on, I'm sure we'll hear more from it in the future. Let's move on to our second topic. The Islamic State has increasingly been a hot item for world leaders. Spread out across Iraq and Syria, the group has allegedly committed a large number of atrocities. It has a proven appetite for warfare as it wages war with the Iraqi government, the Peshmerga, the Syrian government, Syrian rebels, the army of Gondor, Pikachu, and pretty much every other combatant in the region. In response to the Islamic State's campaigns, United States President Barack Obama on September 10th formally announced the American policy to quote, 
degrade and ultimately destroy the Islamic State. President Obama brought up four key points. Let's talk about those a little bit. President Obama's four points outlining the United States strategy against the Islamic State include 1. A systematic campaign of airstrikes, strategically moving past humanitarian missions to incorporate a rollback of the insurgents' gains across rebel-held Iraq. With over 150 manned and unmanned strikes since last month, the President noted the United States will not hesitate to attack the Islamic State's positions in Syria. 2. The President authorized 475 additional advisors, not in a combat role, sent to help train the Peshmerga and Iraqi army. The President also proposed $500 million in assistance to the Syrian rebels, which is still being debated in Congress and will likely not be voted upon until after the midterm elections. 3. Cut off funding and stem the flow of foreign fighters. It is imperative to note that thousands of Islamic State fighters have Western passports. And 4. Humanitarian assistance will continue to support those minorities and groups threatened by the extremist rebels. Now, to enact this strategy, the United States will not go it alone. At the NATO summit in Wales at the beginning of September, a core coalition of ten countries was formed, including Britain, Australia, Canada, Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, Poland, the United States, and Turkey. But it is the last member in this list which is causing severe fragmentations within the alliance. Being the only NATO member in the region, sharing a border with Syria, and as a known entry point for foreign fighters into Syria, Turkey's position on the Islamic State is one to examine more in depth. In regards to the U.S.-led coalition, Ankara will only cooperate with humanitarian assistance, share intelligence, and give logistical support to Syrian opposition groups. NATO deployed American, Dutch, and German troops into southern Turkey to operate its Patriot missile batteries. But Turkey will not allow the U.S.-led coalition to launch strikes from its air bases. The kidnapping of nearly 50 Turkish nationals from its consulate in Mosul, Iraq in June is significantly restraining Turkish foreign policy on the Islamic State. Al Jazeera reported that Ankara is hesitant to allow access to its air bases over fear of retaliation from the Islamic State against its hostages, especially after the execution of two American journalists. The reasons why Turkey is hesitant to engage the Islamic State militarily find their roots in Turkish domestic politics. Not only will it jeopardize Ankara's foreign policy, but it will also endanger its foreign nationals and, most importantly, help Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Since the Syrian civil war started in 2011, Turkey has advocated for his removal from power. This presents an interesting dynamic to the Syrian conflict and to the global response to the Islamic State. While the insurgency must not be allowed to run rampant, steal military equipment, carry out large-scale atrocities of minorities who do not conform to their doctrine and beliefs, and capture Iraqi oil fields, we must understand the underlying basis that caused this, a lack of political transfer in Syria. Until Bashar al-Assad steps down and the political transition is encouraged, I fear this may continue to get worse. For the Islamic State, contemporary borders do not matter. However, for NATO, they do. If rebel fighting were to spill into Turkey, the outgoing NATO Secretary General has gone on the record saying, quote, If Turkey was attacked by the Islamic State, NATO would aid its ally. So now that we have gone over the policy, Derek, what are your reservations? Well, there are some serious drawbacks to the policy. On my blog, I wrote a critique of the American policy wherein I pointed out that there was noticeably little substance on Syria beyond the apparent authorization of airstrikes. The United States is relying on the moderate elements of the Syrian rebels, namely the Free Syrian Army, to take the fight to the Islamic State inside Syria. There's a few issues with that. First and foremost, it's that those same rebels are losing. They've been pushed out of provinces in the east and are beset by the government and the Islamic State in the west. 
For better or for worse, the United States has been leery of arming them to this point, and it's uncertain whether providing them arms now will make a difference. Let's not forget that the dynamics of the Syrian war are complicated. These moderate rebels, the ones that the United States has vetted, actively worked alongside an al-Qaeda faction in the area known as the al-Nusra Front. The al-Nusra Front has been very effective against the government and throughout most of the country maintains relatively good relations with the rebels, but it should not be lost on anyone that this militia is affiliated directly with al-Qaeda. By aiding the moderate rebels, the United States cannot escape the critique that it is also aiding al-Qaeda. For a country engaged in a war on terror, that sounds pretty contradictory. Turning to Iraq, it is good that former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki has stepped aside, for his sectarian policies were doing a lot of harm. However, his successor may not be viewed by the country's Sunnis as any different, particularly given that the supposedly new government is composed of officials from the previous one. A different face doesn't mean different inclusive policy will come about. If Iraq is to stay together, one can only hope that such policy will be implemented. True, this is out of American hands, but the issue here is that the United States risks worsening the position of Sunnis in the country altogether. A lot of the Islamic State's support base is from Sunnis who are legitimately angry at their government for sidelining them. A different face with the same policy, supported by American air power, will ensure that the Kurds and the Shia government will gain while the Sunni community suffers. This is hardly a recipe for a more stable Iraq in the long run. Again, it is truly dependent on the new Iraqi government's policies. Those are my critiques and why we should not be satisfied with the president's plan. Though something is definitely better than nothing. Perhaps by this point you're wondering whatever happened with that quote I mentioned earlier. Allow me to repeat it. The reason we got here is because we took it upon ourselves to topple secular dictators who are enemies of radical Islam. This was said by Senator Rand Paul on a Fox News interview with Sean Hannity following President Obama's policy announcement. What Senator Paul is referring to is the fact that the United States and its allies have brought down two strongmen in the region over the last decade, those being Saddam Hussein and Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, and has demonstrated an intense opposition to Syrian strongman Bashar al-Assad. These rulers have some incredibly horrible human rights records, and the people they have subjugated certainly deserve freedom from oppression. The main problem here is that these men were overthrown in favor of implanting democratic institutions that needed to be created out of thin air. They didn't exist previously. What that means is that the implementation of democracy has been shaky at best and is easily exploitable by extremists. In effect, the decision to bring down Saddam Hussein has made the problem of terrorism multiply tenfold, even though that invasion was ostensibly part of the war against terror groups. The NATO air campaign in Libya brought an end to Colonel Gaddafi, but not an end to the troubles facing Libya. The country today is far less stable than it was under Colonel Gaddafi. The reason I bring this up is because the United States has thus far struggled to assist regional governments in containing the ever-expanding terrorism. Perhaps it's time the United States rethought its regional policy, not just its Iraq and Syria one. So now that we've heard about South Sudan and the Islamic State, what should we be looking for in the week ahead? In the week ahead, on September 18th, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry addresses the House Foreign Affairs Committee outlining the policy against the Islamic State. And secondly, Scotland holds its referendum on secession from the United Kingdom. And thirdly, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko visits the United States, where he will hold a meeting with President Barack Obama and address a joint session of Congress. That's certainly a lot to be looking for. Well, this marks the end of our episode today. Nick, thank you very much for joining. Thank you for having me on, Derek. See you next time.